<laughs> Here we, we think about this very description of our boldness and confident access through faith in Jesus Christ. Here we, we think about how important it is that there is a means, that there is a provision of salvation. That, as we talked about last week in verses 10, uh, 9 and 10, that the angels have no hope of salvation. They fell, and that's it. They will face judgment. Yet, for humans, for men, God has provided a way, and that is the means of salvation through Jesus Christ. It wasn't a plan that he suddenly uh, was caught off guard and had to come up with. No, that this was God's plan all along, that from all eternity, Jesus was prepared to pay the price, to pay the penalty, the very penalty that we deserved when he died on the cross, that he indeed paid the price in full. It wasn't as if he made a partial payment, a, a first installment payment, and we pay the rest, or the church pays some. No, Jesus pays it all. And that we, as sinners, are simply called to believe upon him, to trust in his perfect provision. Amen. Here in the book of Ephesians, we have Jesus Christ presented as our glorious Savior. And that he has also called the church, that the church would bear witness of this mystery. That this mystery, we're told in Ephesians chapter 3, was given to men such as the Apostle Paul and to the other apostles. And that this mystery was to be made known. That the Apostle Paul made it known by his preaching, by his teaching, and by his writing. Here, when we think about God's eternal plan, all of his plan was centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is central he is central to, Christ, to God's plan. He alone provides you and me access to the Father. That access to the Father only comes through Him. And that you and I would be those who acknowledge this access gives us boldness. It changes our demeanor. It changes our hope. And that we don't wear out God by coming to Him. That through Jesus Christ, we come to him often. We should come to him as often as we need him. And this, this is all the time that we need him. And that as you endure your sufferings on behalf of Jesus Christ, that knowing that you have confident access and boldness to go to him, that this would, should help you to endure in your Christian life. So the truth that we see in this passage God's eternal purpose in Christ is your bold access to him by faith in Christ and your endurance unto glory. God's eternal purpose in Christ is your bold access to him by faith in Christ and your endurance unto glory. We'll look at this in three points. The first is God's eternal purpose in Christ in verse 11. Second, your bold access by faith in Christ. And third, your endurance unto glory in Christ. So the first point, God's eternal purpose in Christ in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here, the Apostle Paul began in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians speaking about his stewardship of the gospel. How he and the other apostles were given this revelation. That the Apostle Paul was made a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
so that he might preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. As, as if you and I could plumb the depths of, of this wisdom and knowledge of God, the riches that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that eternity will not be enough time to hear and to learn about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Through the church, this manifold wisdom of God uh, might be made known to the ends of the earth, that not only to all the nations, but even to the angelic hosts, that they also would be those who would hear, that the angels have this with greater wisdom than man, yet they could not they could not ascertain, they couldn't come up with the idea about salvation through Jesus Christ. That God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, might take upon himself human flesh. That the angels could not conceive of this idea. It was God who provided it. It was God's wisdom, his infinite wisdom. And we're told that, that, that Jesus Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. That this was God's plan all along. It, it wasn't an afterthought. We see that in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, when we see that our election was in Christ and that this was from all eternity. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That your adoption as, as sons and daughters in Christ was also from eternity. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And that your redemption through Christ, the, the payment that Jesus made, this also was from eternity. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Here we have God's eternal purpose. The fulfillment of God's plan will happen exactly as he revealed in his word, that the prophecies were, were stated. The Old Testament prophecies were stated. The New Testament shows the fulfillment of that. And here, what's remaining is Christ's return and uh, our glorification. And these plans yet unfulfilled will be fulfilled exactly as God revealed, exactly as he promised. When you think about plans... Perhaps you can have an appreciation for different types of people. You have planners, and then you have non-planners. And God, in his wisdom, seems to match those people up as husband and wife, right? You have planners, and you have non-planners. And in God's mercy, he matches them together. And sometimes you realize that God's mercy fun functions in different ways, because you have planners and non-planners, and they get on each other's nerves, right? But... It's helpful to have a planner married to a non-planner. I think about some, some of the vacations that we took as a child. I kid you not, I was like five or six years old. Uh, my, my family, my, my dad, my mom, my brother, and I, we were in the car coming home from church, right? We, we were coming home from church, and, and, and my dad, said, we lived out in California, my dad decides, you know what, we're going on vacation, <laughs> And then later that night, after the sunset, we ended up in Yosemite National Park, okay, of all places. And I remember this as a kid, I still remember this as a five-year-old, that my brother and I, my mom, slept in the back of, of the, the wagon. They, they, had this, they had this car, my dad had car that was a wagon, so we flipped the front seat down, or flipped the back seat down, and my mom, my brother, and I slept in the back. My dad 
he slept on the picnic table at the campsite, right? And we're, we were wondering as, as kids, well, some bear is going to eat our dad, right? But you see, talk about horrible plans, right? No planning at all. On the way, you know what? We need to get to Yosemite. But you realize that God did not do this. His plan was from eternity. His plan all along was that Jesus Christ would be the redeemer of the elect. God's plan from the fullness of time. <coughs> Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All the things of heaven, all the things on earth, they all fit together in this one person who is Jesus Christ. Here, you think about God's plan. God's plans are not subject to change or to detour based on the whims of man. Yes, God's plans include the decisions of men, the actions of men. But it's not as if a human could detour God's plan by saying, ah, I'm going to do this, and all your plans are going to be ruined. That God's plans, he, maybe we could describe it this way, he only has a plan A. He doesn't need to form a plan B because his plan A never can and never will fail. And perhaps you're wondering at this point, if God's eternal purpose is in Jesus Christ, all things hold together in him, that he is the Lord of creation, that all of creation is longing for his return. You and I can see here the central place of Jesus Christ in God's eternal purpose. So the question I have for you is, where do you fit in to God's plan that is centered around his son, Jesus Christ? Do you have a saving relationship with him? Do you know him as your Lord and your Savior? Do you call him your master? Do you see that he alone is your perfect righteousness? That when you ask, what is it you require of me, God? God would say, I require of you perfection. That is the only way that you may pass. And you ask yourself, where is my perfection? Because I'm a sinner. And the answer is, you have none. You must look to Jesus Christ. Jesus indeed is perfect. His righteousness is perfect. Unless you have a saving relationship with him, unless you're united to him by faith, then you are outside of Christ. You have no access to the Father. You have no access to heaven. So this is the first point, God's eternal purpose in Christ. We have the second point, your bold access by faith in Christ, there in verse 12. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I'm sorry. Uh, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So perhaps it's helpful for us to, to think about who God is, our conception of God. We read earlier in Leviticus chapter 16 that God spoke, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Here, just a few chapters earlier, Leviticus 10 you have the striking down of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were priests. That they offered strange fire 
We ask, well, what is that strange fire? Well, it was fire that God did not command. That they thought, okay, we can make up, we can make up things as we go. We can be innovative, right? We can, we can be imaginative. We come up with all these great ideas. And what was the answer? God struck them dead. This same, same concept of our worship. Hey, hey God, what about if we, if we follow the, the Buddhists or these other religions, that the way they worship their gods, let's bring it into the church. No, this is, this is why God punished Israel when, when they said the same thing. Let's go look at the foreign nations that have many gods and let's bring that worship into the church. No good. Here we ought to understand that God spoke to Moses warning Aaron the priest that he was to bring a sacrifice so that he would not die. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Hebrews speaks about how the priest, he had to bring two sacrifices, one for himself, for his sins, and also another sacrifice for the people. You see that Jesus is the perfect high priest, that he has only one sacrifice. He, he has no sins of his own, so, so he doesn't prevent, present his own sacrifice. He only presents one himself, and that's for the sins of his people. So we ask that question, just who do we think that God is? Well, God is a consuming fire. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the true and the living God. That it's not, it's not like going to grandma and grandpa's, right? Where, hey, you know, hey, we, we just ha had, a, had a day out at the beach, right? There's, there's sand between my toes, and I can just go to grandpa and grandma's house, no big. I can even clean up there. No, no, no. Going to God, that this is a serious matter. Going before the Lord. And... Here, we have an understanding of God. We also must have an understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your one and only mediator. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus alone can fulfill this role that no other person, no other God will do. All the other gods of the nations are false gods. And Jesus alone is that mediator. Jesus said of himself, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't perfect, yes, then you can say, this was the most impudent and prideful thing that anyone could ever say. But since he is God, since he is sinless, since he is holy, then it must be true. And we think about the, the meaning, the extent of this access that you have to Jesus Christ. That Jesus told us that he is that door, he is that gate by which we must pass. John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here, Jesus, is, Jesus promises you salvation through him, that he is that door, and in him you will find pasture, you will find true spiritual life. He alone is the one by which you must access. Jesus alone gives you access to, the, to heaven, to the Father, to eternal life. We saw earlier this very same term in Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. Jesus also said, John 
14 verses 2 and 3, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus also gives you access to the Father in prayer. He gives you access to the Father in prayer because he always lives to intercede for you. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here you ask yourself, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? Well, he hears them, but do they have any assurance that they will be answered? The answer is no. The only way that prayers are answered to to God, any way that a sinner's prayers is answered by God, is if we have one who intercedes for us. Jesus at God's right hand interceding for us. And you ask, is there any human, is there any other man, any, any other person who's already dead in heaven, can they intercede for us? And the answer is no, we have one person, the man Christ Jesus, the alone mediator who can stand between God and man. Here, we think about the way that Satan steps in there and tries to shake things up. He steps in there and he realizes that you want to talk about being caught off guard, uh, having, having your head in a whirl, and, and here being, being gaslighted. I mean, who's the master of that? That's, it's Satan, right? A- anyone who is an abuser would have learned it from Satan because he comes from so many different angles to make your head spin. Satan begins by calling into question, calling into doubt the saving ability of Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about his name, even Jesus' name. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His very name, Jesus, means that he saves. He saves his people from their sins. Satan comes in, and he starts to cast doubt. You know what? I don't know how serious you should get about this Jesus guy. I don't think you should be going to him and to his word every time you need to make an important decision in life or even a minor decision in life. You know what? I just don't see him as being the only way. How can you be so impudent to say that you need to live by this one book? Isn't that kind of myopic? Isn't that kind of short-sighted? Maybe you've heard it presented this way. Oh, I'm such a great sinner. I just don't know if Jesus can save me. And and for us to think, wow, this person is very humble. No, this person is impudent because they're calling God a liar when, when he names his son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that the person who says, hey, I'm such a great sinner. Jesus can't save me. He's saying, God, you're a liar. You lie when you say that Jesus is the Savior. This is, this is not humility, that's impudence. That's pride, that's calling God a liar. That's... Here's Satan also, besides calling into question 
Jesus, Jesus as Savior, he, he puffs you up in your pride so that you reject your own need for a Savior. Think about any time you make statements that begin with these two phrases. Look at all that I do in the church, for my family, for my marriage, for my friends, for society. Look at all that I do. Anytime you're starting your idea with that, with that phrase, look at all that I do. This is Satan puffing you up, saying, you know what? You don't need a savior, right? Your works can save you. Or, or how about the other, the other phrase? At least I'm not a... I, I kid you not, we, we have a friend who is an adulterer, who goes to church, and she walked out of the preaching of the word saying, at least I'm not a drug dealer, or at least I'm not a child molester, because I'm an adulterer. That's not quite as bad, right? You look at James 2, James 2.10, he who is guilty of breaking the law is guilty of breaking all of it, that the law is one, the law, the law is unity. It's not like there's a bunch of little pieces of the law, and I could keep some of it and break some of it. No, no, the law is unity. You break one, you've broken it all. So at least I'm not a, is the beginning of Satan puffing you up in your pride to think you don't need a savior, especially for those respectable sins. Then the other common lies that Satan likes to spread. All good people go to heaven. You know what? We don't need to be so serious about this Jesus fellow because all good people will go to heaven. How do you define good? God alone defines good. It will all work out in the end. You heard that one? It will all work out in the end. Yes. <clears throat> Sinners will be judged. Every single sin will be accounted for. And only those whose sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, they will be the ones who enter heaven. It will all work out in the end in that way. It's very interesting when you look at the last words of people on their deathbeds. Those who lived uh, very evil, wicked lives, they can still come up with the statement, God will forgive every new, everyone. God will forgive everyone because that's his job. Interesting. Here we, we think about the ways that we deviate from what is right and true in God's design. Look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we ought to conclude that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So our, our access is through faith in Jesus Christ. We could easily start cutting out some parts of the sentence. Your bold access. You have access. Well, you have access based on what? We, we, we cut out this faith in him. right? It, it's, not, it's not a sentence that we can just truncate. right? Leaving off the person and the work of Jesus Christ is ultimately trusting in yourself, trusting in your own works. You can't just suddenly say you have bold access because of yourself. Or even your bold access by faith. That the last part in him, your, old, your, access, your bold access by faith. Oh, it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we're sincere about it. It does matter the object of your faith. If your faith is in yourself, if your faith is in nothing, Right, then your faith is worthless. 
It's only faith being united to Jesus Christ. That is, uh, that is important. That is a saving faith. You think also about the implications. The implications of faith. So if you believe, but the implications of faith aren't there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere faith and full assurance. Uh, sorry. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A sincere heart, clean of an evil conscience, means that it's not a cover for unrepentant sin. When we come to Jesus Christ, that we don't come with our own unrepented sins that are remaining there. If we're going to come by faith, it means that we must confess, we must forsake our own sins. We can't come to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, I'm coming to you, I believe you, but these sins of my life, I'm going to hold on to them until my deathbed. That's, that's this uh, coming with an evil conscience. You see the effect of this confident access by faith in Christ, the effect that it has upon you. The effect is this boldness. This boldness. And you think about how boldness, it's not as the world thinks. Right here, I, I think back to one of my pastors, a, a godly man, shared about how he pastored the church, we'd be instructing these children over the years that they go on and they go to like Harvard, right? They go off to Harvard in their first semester. Winter break, they come back, and they're saying, hey, pastor, you told us that we're descendants, that God, we're created in God's image. Well, you're wrong. We're descendants of monkeys. And it's like, what? You mean to tell me that you, you would rather not be created in the image of God? You want to believe that you're descendant from slime and from monkeys because your professor at Harvard told you so? And, and we think, well, wait a minute. Isn't that boldness for this young man to go back to challenge his pastor, right? Because... His pastor was obviously teaching what is false. No, that's not boldness. Following the ways of the world is not boldness. Following the ways of Jesus Christ. Being bold in Christ when the opposition is the world. That is boldness. That is true boldness. Here, the tendency for sinful men is that we would be overcome with doubt, with fear, with anxiety, and with worry. Look how much this has been a problem. Even you look at the last two years, how many issues have come up? Right? I think about some of, these, some of these companies that provide mental health services. Why is it that they keep on opening up new locations? Right? It's because the world, the people of the world are suffering from, from doubt, from fear, from anxiety, from worry. Yet here we have the promise that in Jesus Christ, you can have confident access with boldness to our God because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. The solution is not to raise your self-esteem, not to make you feel better about yourself. The solution is for you to trust more in your mediator and savior, Jesus Christ. That is the solution. Not so that you would feel better about yourself on your path to hell. The solution is that you would trust more in Jesus. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And this timidity is that fear and doubt. 
But because of Jesus being made anew, a new creation, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit that you are, you have power, love, and discipline. This is, this is true boldness. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go frequently and boldly to the throne of grace. Go often. This means that you and I are to be quick to repent of our sins. We must forsake them. We must leave them be. We must leave them behind. Go to Jesus for your cure. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 17, let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house or he will become weary of you and hate you. Here, this is wise instruction. If you find yourself constantly out of supplies and you're constantly going to your neighbor's house saying, hey, I need a cup of sugar. Hey, I, I, I need a quart of milk, all right? Obviously, this is true. He's gonna get worn out. He's gonna say, hey, buddy, listen to me. You need to plan out your day better. You need to make a list before you... Hey, uh, there's an app for that for your phone. You can go to, to the store, right? And, and you can have... You can, even, you can even go to the store. You don't even need to go in the store. You can stay out there in the parking lot. They'll bring you the supplies, right? And we understand. Your neighbor is a finite person. He doesn't want to be your supplier. But God is not like your neighbor. God commands you that you would go often. That you might say, Lord, I'm sorry, I just came to you five minutes ago in prayer. I must come to you again. And, and God delights, no, come often. Come as often as you need to. You've, you've come to me in prayer again, good, I'm glad. And you think about the promise that you've received. You will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Think about when you and I are confronted by our sins. You can start blaming other people. Hey, it's not, it's not me. It's how I was raised, right? It's how I was raised. You can make excuses. Hey, it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. But the people above me, people around me, it's all their faults. Or you can say, hey, I've been given great promises. <sighs> Boldness, confident access through faith in him. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Go quickly to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your hope for forgiveness. So that's the second point, your bold access by faith in Christ. We have the third point, your endurance unto glory in Christ, in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here, the Apostle Paul is concerned. Was his letter written in prison? They heard about his sufferings. They heard about his mistreatments. And you can imagine the scene that it would be like. That here this man is telling them this good news of Jesus Christ. Even while he's being reviled, even while he's being cursed, the common person would say, hey, listen, why would I want to identify with that guy? He seems like all of my neighbors hate him. All of my neighbors are saying evil and wicked things about him. We realize if we are going to be in Christ, we're going to have to be able to identify with suffering and shame. Right? Hebrews 10, earlier part of the chapter, speaks about how they 
willingly gave up their property. Confiscation, right? Confiscation of property. Hey, we're taking this from you. And of course, they're not going to tell you, we're taking this from you because you're a Christian. They're going to say, wait, we're taking this from you because you stole it, right? You've obviously, uh, you've obviously taken advantage of people and you've stolen it. And there it also says that they willingly identified with those who were in prison, right? You, you would think that there would be some guilt by association. And of course there is, because if we identify with those Christians who are imprisoned, right? Then obviously, hey, wait a minute. It must be because you're a Christian too. And wait a minute, you're, you're only two steps away. So you, you, you hand off food or supplies to this person in prison. Well, you know what? Well, here's your, here's your cell. And here the apostle Paul was concerned about this, but you realize that what he's telling them is what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It's not so much the Apostle Paul's suffering, it's Christ's suffering that you and I are identifying with. Here, this term used, I ask you not to lose heart. To lose heart. This term was used commonly to describe pregnant women losing strength in their labor and delivery. Can you imagine what this would amount to? So before or now without modern medicine, that uh, a woman attempting to labor to give birth, if she is exhausted in her strength, then the mother and child are done. It's not they're done until another day, they're done, meaning that both mother and child will die. That's tragic. But you realize here what the Apostle Paul has said, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In the Christian life, it'd be far more tragic. There are many who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but if they lose heart and give up, there are eternal consequences. There are eternal consequences for that. Consider what is at stake. We see the importance of endurance. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This is not saying that endurance is a work, that you earn your salvation by enduring. No, not at all. It's descriptive that he who is in Christ, he is the one who endures. He is the one who is willing to accept the suffering and the shame on behalf of the name of Christ. That he is the one who perseveres to the end. He is the one who says, I've counted the cost, and that cost is worthy. There's a need for you to count that cost, for me. You look at the positive. The positive is what, is what we just spoke about. Your boldness and confident access to the Father through faith in Christ. That is the positive. I hope you can see that as a positive. How many people have access to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him? Many people claim to have the ear of God, but it's only if you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior that you actually have access to the Father and to heaven. And you look at the negative, a life of suffering on behalf of Christ. And then you and I have to ask ourselves here, is that really a negative? The world says it's a negative. Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, that we would have the fellowship of his sufferings. Somehow in suffering, you and I come to learn more about the perfection 
the glory and the comfort of Jesus Christ. We come to a greater appreciation of our Lord. We come to realize that he identifies with us. Whatever suffering you and I have in this life, Jesus is able to empathize with it. Because he suffered far more. I've heard stories about POWs in concentration camps. And here, in the camps, they don't make it easy. They try to break you, right? And uh, whether it's being lost at sea or whether or not it's being in a concentration camp as a POW, uh, it's the battle of the present situation. Being mistreated, uh, being beaten, being tortured. There's an account of a man who was a POW. And he, he got past all of those difficulties because he was thinking about golf. I don't know how long he was in the camp, whether it be months, whether it be years. But he, he, he had a safe space that was whenever he had difficulty, whenever uh, the abusers, the torturers came, he thought about golf. And then months or years later, after he was released, he went back home and he played a game of golf. And we're told that it was the best game he ever played in his life, even though he hadn't played in all that time. He was in the concentration camp. They don't, they don't give you access to the, to the greens, you realize. Uh, and, and here, I, I hope you can see, there's something far greater that you have as a Christian. That it's not golf. You go through life, viewing everything in life with this lens of faith, interpreting all of the events of life that are sent to you by God. I hope you can see that with the lens of faith that you interpret the difficulties that come and you realize that God's eternal purpose for you in Christ is your sanctification. That you become more like Jesus our Lord. That your escape would be the peace of God that no one can take from you. This peace only comes through Jesus Christ. Nobody can take that. No one can rob it of you. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 and following. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You see here, this is, in this verse, we have the combination of endurance and confidence and receiving what was promised. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. Don't throw away your confidence, we're told. We have confident access, boldness to Jesus Christ. Endure in it and you will receive what is promised. You will receive eternal life. This is a good thing. Do not give up. Think more about God's exceedingly great promises for you in Jesus Christ. They are all sure. God is one who always speaks the truth. May you and I realize, even in this life as we struggle through it, that we must become less and Jesus must become more. May we go to our God together in prayer.